Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, you may be seated. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 46. We've just completed a series on faith that we were teaching for a number of weeks. And I had in my heart to teach on the end times this morning. Just some things to encourage us and let us know where we are on God's timetable. In in Isaiah chapter 46, God is, through the prophet Isaiah, reprimanding the children of Israel for their decline into idolatry. And he makes mention of several of the gods that they serve, or the idols that they were worshiping, in other words. And beginning in verse 9, God says something that shows the difference between himself and any and every other god. Remember the former things of old, verse 9. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I want you to realize what God is saying differentiates him from any other God that can be worshipped or any other idol that is worshipped in this earth. He says he shows the end from the beginning. Now folks, if you look at the other religions of the world, Hinduism doesn't tell you what's coming down the road. Buddhism doesn't tell you what's ahead. Islam doesn't show you the future. God and only God declares what the future will be. God and only God declares the end from the beginning. There are 300 plus prophecies that were made about the Messiah. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled specifically by Jesus coming to the earth, ministering here, going to the cross and being raised from the dead. The statistical probability of anyone under any circumstances, being able to fulfill the 300 prophecies that were made about the Messiah is an absurd number. It's the equivalent of one out of 480 and 33 zeros percent. It's too big to even name the number. And there are more prophecies by a multiplier of eight about the end times than there was about Jesus coming. God wants you to know what's coming down the road. He wants you to know the future. Now turn with me to to, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. In other words, I've told you this before. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first. Now, please notice that phrase. Peter is saying, I want to remind you of things, not just things that I've told you before, but things that are in the Old Testament, written by the prophets as they were inspired by the Holy Ghost. 
as well as the apostles, and he's including others beside himself. You realize that the word of God says that the, the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. But he says, in order for you to have a clear understanding and walk in the truth and the knowledge of what has been foretold before, know this first. Realize and recognize that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Notice that phrase. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That the word of God, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now... Let's talk about this for a minute. Peter says that one of the outstanding characteristics of the end times would be people scoffing at the return of Jesus. The coming of Jesus is identified in two ways in the scripture. It speaks of the day of the Lord and it speaks of the coming, his coming. And you have to find the context of what's being spoken of or what's being talked about to be able to identify which one is, is it referring to. One of the things that I want you to realize here where, it, where Peter uses the example of the earth being overflowed with water. Well, most people look at that and they say, well, that's got to be talking about Noah's flood. And it could be. And there are things about the flood in Noah's day that illustrate the rapture. In one sense, Noah and his family were raptured from the devastation and the destruction of the flood. But I want you to consider something about this. Notice Peter says, we'll read it again. He says in verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of. He's talking about the scoffers, the unbelievers. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now the word world is the word cosmos. There are different words that are used for world. One means the planet and the other means the order of the world, the order or arrangement of the world. And I would submit to you folks that during Noah's day, during the flood, the world wasn't destroyed. There was the same world system that existed after the flood as what existed before. God didn't have to recreate the earth. He didn't have to reinstitute gravity. He didn't have to gather the waters and separate it from the dry land. The waters just simply receded and it was in the same form as it had been before. So here where it talks about the world that then was, the cosmos that then was being overflowed with water perished. He's not talking about Noah's flood. He's talking about the beginning, the condition of the earth that we find Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. 
Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the world was, literally became without form and void, and darkness moved upon the face of the deep. That's the world he's talking about. That's the world that he recreated. Now with that in mind, I want you to notice some of the phraseology again. Back in verse 4, scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? You don't really believe Jesus is coming back in that rapture stuff, do you? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The beginning of the creation. Notice he references the creation with this world that was destroyed. For this they willingly are ignorant of. How are they ignorant concerning the, the creation? Well, the easy answer is evolution. The theory of evolution. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, there's a different heaven and a different earth than before this overflowing with water. Again, that can't be Noah's day. That can't be talking about the flood in Noah's day. There's not a new heaven and an earth from that. Is there? But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, the same word that created the earth, remember ten times in the first chapter of Genesis it says, and God said, and it was. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. It's talking about the creation account. One of the things that the earth, that the, uh, the church is less grounded and established in than it should be has to do with the creation account. For the Jews, the creation account is everything. It is said by the rabbis, the masters, the, the most of the scholarly rabbis that have existed since Moses and Aaron, that to have an understanding of God, you have to understand the beginning. And Genesis is the book of beginnings. It is the foundation to believe that God is everything that he says that he is. Folks, if God lied about the creation then there is no basis for Christianity. If you want to understand who's doing what in this world, you have to understand the creation. You have to understand that when God created the world, he did it in six days, and at the end of those six days, everything was perfect. And he made an end of all that he created. That's the last thing he created was mankind on the sixth day. Anything that wasn't on the earth, God didn't make from that point forward. Well, look at sickness and disease. Where was that? Nowhere in God's creation. Was there anything that could hurt or harm mankind whatsoever? Nope. And God called that good. He identified it as very good or perfect. So the things that brought destruction to man came as a result of the fall of man. Man who had been given authority here on the earth over God's, all of God's work. Prior to that, 
Everything was the way that God intended for it to be. We could even say that it was the kingdom of God on the earth. And God never changes. So if God didn't want sickness and disease to be a part of his creation in the beginning, he doesn't want sickness and disease to be a part of your life now. He did not will that for his children in the beginning or now or evermore. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved under fire, unto fire, against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Then he talks about patience. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Don't be concerned about how, how long it's been since we believed in his promise. Because the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, it's saying it's taken as long as it has because God wants to populate his family up until the last moment of time. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. There are, as I said, over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And the equivalent of the statistical probability of that happening is scientifically, scientifically considered to be absurd. See, there gets a point even where science is concerned that the number gets so big and they just say, well, that's absurd. The absurdity is to think that it could be anything other than God's plan for Jesus to fulfill the messianic prophecies. Well, there are more than eight times the number of scriptures or the information about the end times, the coming of the day of the Lord, and by that I mean the end of the tribulation period. There are over eight times the number of prophetic information, scriptures that give us prophetic information than there were for Jesus' coming. But the rapture is a little different because the rapture, Jesus told us that no man knows the day or the hour that Jesus is coming. Now, you can't apply that. I know a lot of people do. But you can't legitimately apply that to the day of the Lord which is spoken of Jesus coming back in judgment. In the first place, we know down to the day how long the tribulation period is. It's seven years exactly. We know exactly the first thing that takes place that kicks off the seven years of tribulation. That's when Russia and the coalition of armies, countries and their armies, mostly Islamic, come down from the north and invade Israel. And in one 24-hour period, God destroys them all and passes judgment on the people of those countries and those lands. So if we know the beginning of the seven years, 
we can identify exactly when the end of those seven years is. So there's no way that anybody can be ignorant except by the choice of when the day of the Lord of Jesus, meaning Jesus coming back with his elect. In other words, the Bible talks about that day being one that we come back with it. So if there are all kinds of signs and we can specifically pair up, nail down the end of the tribulation or when Jesus comes back in his glory to execute judgment, the thing that makes it different about the rapture is that Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. So we don't have specific signs that tell us or point to us about Jesus' return for the church which is known as the rapture, like we do concerning his return in glory and judgment at the end of the tribulation. The signs that we have, or the information that we have, concerning the rapture has to do with the state of people. It has to do with what's going to be the case, what the human condition will be at the end. You remember, in, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is. For in the last days perilous times will come. For men shall be lovers of themselves and goes through the whole list of things and attributes or characteristics of, the, of what people will be like and what they'll be engaged in prior to Jesus' return. Then in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he talks about Men departing from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. People who are unwilling to accept sound doctrine and teaching because they have things, pet subjects, or things they'd rather hear talked about. Paul said here in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Now folks, realize what he's saying. This seems to be impossible. Because he's talking about the unbelievers. And he's saying there is evidence. God has made evidence known to and even unbelievers about himself. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation. Here he's talking about the teaching or the doctrine or the, the understanding of God creating the earth. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by things that are made, even as, as his eternal power and, and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, 
who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature or the creation more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust toward one another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. There are two things that are identified specifically here. And that is a rejection of God's creation account. Or again the theory of evolution. And then it also mentions worshiping the creation more than worshiping the creator. Folks, that's what climate change is all about. That's what this whole premise of climate change is about. It's the idea that man can control his environment. And you've got all kinds of crazy things and crazy people who have now been elected to office and stand in government positions and are saying stupid things like we have to change the economy of the world and invest sums of money that would bankrupt every country in the world so that we save ourselves from climate change. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Now notice something else here. Notice connected with this, the rejection of the creation account. Notice the connection of homosexuality and sexual preferences and notice how prominent those two issues are in the world that we live in. Are you out there? God said he's God. And I'll prove it by showing you the end from the beginning. We need to keep our eyes open, folks, to things that are going on around us. Now, this naturally bleeds over into politics. I really don't like talking politics. And one of the reasons I don't like talking politics is because I believe that everybody has the wisdom to see what's really going on in the world around us. And I've been disproved on that so many times it's not even funny. See, I assume people recognize the devil's agenda in politics. And then I hear statements being made by people that prove that they don't see it. And I have to just shake my head and wonder. A lot of people are going to be divided in these last days by politics, by the church's stand on politics. That has been made painfully aware to me in the last presidential election. Now, I say things in a straightforward manner. 
things like how could a Christian vote for a party that supports the murder of children, which is what abortion is. And people get mad at me for that. Well, what do you do? Just give up on the truth so you don't make anybody mad? Folks, I have a God-given gift to not care if people get mad. You think I'm kidding. I supernaturally don't care what people think. And that makes people mad too. But folks, there are signs. Not signs of the rapture. Because the rapture is basically signless. And the reason it's signless, again, because Jesus, this is the third time I think I've said it this morning. Jesus said he doesn't even know the day or the hour. So how can he give us signs when he doesn't know himself? And the, the, the funny part about it, or the remarkable part about it, is that Jesus said the reason he doesn't know the time or the day or the hour is because he would show everything he knows to us. So the Holy Spirit gave us information about what the condition of the world, the human condition would be before the end. And we see those things in Scripture and talk about some of those. But let's look at some other things. Let's look at some times or signs of the day of the Lord, Jesus coming back to the earth in judgment. Because we have to be able to recognize then how close we might be getting. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 29 and then I'll back up and pull in some other scriptures as well. Jesus spake to them a parable. This is after having talked to them about signs of the end, what's coming, what to expect, and so forth. Jesus said to them in a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now at hand. So likewise you, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. He's talking about the end. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So he says in verse 29, look at the fig tree and the other trees. Now remember it's parable. So he's not talking about looking literally at trees. The trees represent something. And the trees represented, the fig tree represents Israel. And that goes back to even Old Testament scriptures. Over and over again, God uses the fig tree as an example of Israel. Well, Jesus knows that and the Holy Ghost knows that. So he doesn't give another explanation for the fig tree. He uses the same example that Israel should be familiar with from the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. So here where he says, behold the fig tree and the other trees, he literally means behold or keep your eye on Israel. Now if Israel as a nation is considered a tree, then the other trees would be the other nations. So he says, keep your eye on Israel. You want to know where things are? You want to know how close we are to the end? Keep your eyes on Israel. Now what about Israel should we watch for? Well, let's back up a little bit into the chapter. We don't want to start with verse 1 
or the early part of the chapter for the sake of time. So I'm not going to be talking about um, rumors of wars and earthquakes and things like that. I want to talk to you about what he said here concerning the end. Notice verse 20. Jesus said, And when you see Jerusalem compassed about with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein. For these be days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now he's talking here, when he talks about vengeance, he's talking about the tribulation period. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles shall end. He goes on and talks about some other signs of the tribulation period. Signs in the sun and in the moon and so forth. Well, we know some of those things are spelled out for us in Revelation. But here what I really want to get to, what I really want to point out is that he says there are two telltale signs, both having to do with Israel. One, behold the fig tree and the other trees. He said, when you see the, the green leaves shoot forth, you know what time of year it is. It's summer, and summer is speaking of being spoken of here as far as the harvest is concerned. Well, we know that Israel became a nation in 1948. In other words, the leaves shot forth in 1948. And then he also said in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem compassed about with armies, enemies. Well, that took place in 1967. The Six-Day War brought the city of Jerusalem back under Jewish control for the first time in thousands of years. So Jesus gives two signs, two specific signs. One that occurred and was, uh, took place in 1948, the other that took place in 1967. And then he said of those events, he said, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. He's saying the generation that saw the formation of the nation of Israel in 1948 and the recapture of Jerusalem, which took place in 1967, he said that's the generation that will see his return. That's the generation that will see his return. Folks, there are things that are taking place on a, almost a daily basis, certainly weekly basis, regarding Israel and regarding prophecies concerning Israel that are just astonishing. Some are small things. Some are bigger things. Something that happened in 1880-something was a key to setting the stage for the events that are taking place now. And that was... Since, 19, since uh, 135 A.D., the Hebrew language was lost. 
For 1900 years, or 1800 years, the Jews had no language. But in, in 1880-something, there was one guy. He was a language guy. He knew many other languages. He recognized that the, that the, the Bible prophesied that Israel's language would return. And it did. Now, here's some, what, 120 years later? Something like that. Israel has had its own language restored. It's an obscure prophecy. But God cares even about the obscure ones. Other things are happening. Most notably, the things that are happening to keep our eye on maybe the most is the relationship between Russia and the other countries of the Middle East that are enemies of Israel. Because in Genesis 30, I'm in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, it speaks specifically of who will make up the coalition army that will attack Israel. And the attack on Israel is the first day. It's the starting point of the tribulation period. You see Russia forming alliances with Iran. And those are the first two countries on the list in, in ex, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Other nations are falling into place like the Bible says that it will be when they invade Israel from the north, from Syria. You may not be aware of this, but Russia has financed a Syrian military installation just within the last several months that's two miles from the Israeli border. Things are lining up. Other things that are prophesied is that the desert will come to life. Specifically, it says that fishermen will be fishing out of the Dead Sea. How many of you have ever seen the Dead Sea? You've been there, you've seen it, you know something about it. Well, some of us, not, not a lot. Everybody knows that you can float like crazy in the Dead Sea because of the buoyancy caused by the salt water. The content of the salt in the Dead Sea is 37.7% where in ordinary, what we would consider to be ordinary salt water situations, it's less than 10. Yet God said there'd be fish in the sea. You know what they've discovered over the last couple of years? They've discovered these freshwater springs that are coming up on the edges of the Dead Sea. And in this freshwater spring, this little pocket or sinkhole right on the edge of the Dead Sea, they're finding all kinds of life. And just this year, they found fish in the Dead Sea. Kind of like God knew. There are some other things that the Bible speaks of mostly in the Old Testament. One of the things that is spoken of, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, it's about verse 11, where God said he would bring in or bring back to Israel 
Jews that were in other countries. One of the countries that he mentions is the country of Cush, C-U-S-H. Well, we know of that. We know that country to be Ethiopia. And there have been attempts, even as far back as the 70s, to open Israel's borders to displaced Israelis so that they would come back. But there was something that took place in 1991 in Ethiopia. There was some madman guy that got in power. And he was threatening to do to the Jews the same thing that Hitler did as far as exterminating them. And there were two airlifts, one called Operation Moses, one referring to Solomon, where there were individuals that financed to the tune of $30 million or so that financed these huge mega planes that the army uses to carry tanks and all that kind of stuff in the dead of night they went in and loaded up 18,000 Ethiopian Jews and brought them back into Israel and on these planes they arrived with more people than they took when they started because there were four children that were born in flight Since then, there have been other policies that have been enacted by the Israeli governments over those period of years. And at present, it stands that there are 96,000 Ethiopian Jews, just the Ethiopian Jews that have returned to Israel. Just like God said. Something that is so small, it might by some be considered insignificant. But folks, nothing is insignificant with God. I mean, God's down to the minor details. God prophesied through Isaiah the year that Jesus would be born, and he hit it right on the nail, hit the nail on the head. One of the things that it says in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 8, I believe it is, it says that the Temple Mount will be so desolate that the foxes will dwell there. Well, in November of last year, out of the blue, with no previous scouting or recognition of any of these things, there were dozens of foxes that showed up on the Temple Mount. There are other things that are taking place too. Things that are just taking place this year. Last year, in 2018, there's a, a group, a society, the Temple Mount Society, that are preparing for all of the things that will be necessary to reinstitute temple worship. They've got all of the instruments of the temple, the lampstand, the laver, and this last year, they built the altar. Now, as I said, in 2018, I'm not sure when they finished the altar, the construction of the altar, but they took it to the western wall 
the Wailing Wall, you've seen pictures of it, where it's the big open court area. There's a smaller one where the women can go. And this western wall is the closest that people can get to where the Temple Mount was, where the, uh, the original altar was, which is, by the way, the same place where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and the angel stopped him from going through and, and killing his son. And that was significant because God said, now I know that Abraham won't withhold his son from me. I can't withhold mine from him. Well, last year they tried to dedicate this altar next to the western wall and they were arrested. They weren't allowed to do it. But this year they attempted it again and were successful. So they dedicated it in as close a proximity to the original location as they could. They anointed it with oil. They did all the things that Aaron did in the beginning that Solomon fulfilled in his temple and so forth. And they're standing on ready. They've got all the, the implements. They've got all of the materials. They've got all of the supplies. All they're looking for is a clear spot. And they can have the temple back up in no time. Over the last couple of years, there, ha there is, and, and it's kind of hard for us to see because we're not familiar with the, the uh, Jewish tradition of sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. But there's a specific animal that had to be offered for the sins of Israel, particularly on the Day of Atonement. It's called nowadays the red heifer. Well, the problem was the red heifer went extinct. But within the last couple of years, the red heifer somehow came back into being. And so this temple society made up of priests, made up in part at least, <coughs> excuse me, of priests descended from Aaron and the tribe of the Levites. They've been growing these red heifers. So they're ready to make sacrifice. Now folks, the Bible says that during the tribulation period, the sacrifice, temple sacrifice shall be reinstituted. And they're ready to go. For the first time ever, they have fulfilled, they mean this temple society, they have fulfilled all that would be necessary to dedicate these implements and these elements of temple worship. Now you may remember in Solomon's temple there was no sound of hammer or saw or anything like that. In other words, they'd prepare the materials other places and bring it in to the temple location and put it together. Maybe like Legos or something like that. So the significance of this is that the Temple Mount Society has made all of those provisions so they could put it together in a matter of days. I think a lot of times we look at the, what the Bible says about things to come and we think it'll take such a long time. But folks, look how fast things are happening in the world we live in. 
Look at how fast one half of the country lost its mind. Pick your subject. It doesn't matter. Some of the things that we're experiencing now, nobody could have even fathomed that it could be possible 10 years ago. But look how fast things are moving. Well, there's some good news about some of these prophecies and things that are coming to pass as well. For example, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, I think it's verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, all the earth, as a witness, and then shall the end come. God said that the knowledge of his glory would be seen and known in the earth like the waters cover the sea. Now, folks, I always considered the water and the sea to be the same thing. But the waters covering the sea means the depth of water used as an example in the deepest oceans that we know of in the earth. As deep as the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean may be, and I don't know if they're the deepest oceans or not, but as deep as the deepest ocean, God said the earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory in even a greater measure. Now, I believe some of that's going to be the tribulation period, obviously, because there are things that God does in defense of his people that shows that the devil is no match for him. And we know that the beginning of the tribulation brings forth actually the defeat, the 24-hour period, that the defeat of Russia and the coalition armies bring forth the 144,000 evangelists, Jewish evangelists, people that aren't even born again now, people that aren't even born again at the beginning of the tribulation. 144,000 shall be raised up. To minister to and to reach into the Jewish nation for a harvest of souls. Now we're not going to witness that, but look at some of the strange things that are taking place now in the entertainment industry. There's a lot to complain about with Hollywood, but look at what God is doing with rappers. I mean, this Kanye West thing. What do you think about that? There's a lot about it, I wonder. But that's what a wonder does, isn't it? It makes you wonder. One thing I am sure of, he's sincere about what he's doing. He may not know what he's doing, but he's sincere about it. Who would have imagined that just a year ago? Folks, we magnify how fast the devil is moving to accomplish his agenda in the world. If we were able to see and recognize everything that God's doing, we'd laugh at the devil's attempts. Now, some people don't want to hear about the end. And some people especially don't want to hear that we might be close to the end because of the things that they have on their heart and the things that they want to do and the things that they want to experience. But it's kind of like the two-minute clock in football.
Winning teams have preparations made for those last two minutes. The church should be the same. If we are in the last two minutes of the game, if we are on the brink of seeing Jesus, and if Jesus told us the truth, then the generation that saw the 1948 establishment of Israel as a nation and then the Six-Day War in 1967 when Jerusalem was restored to the Jews and under Jewish control. If Jesus told the truth, we've got to be that generation. Those are idiot-proof prophecies. There's no other way to interpret those. We've got a lot of work to do in a short period of time. And I think one of the things that's going to be the most important concerning the church is that we quit nitpicking with one another about points of doctrine and recognize that we're all on the same team. One of the things that a friend of mine said concerning the end times, he was talking about some of the different people some well-known, some not well-known, but different people that had been caught up into heaven. He made the statement that after their vision of heaven was over, some of their doctrine was just as squirrely as it was before they left and went there. He made the point that God didn't correct Jesus when they saw Jesus in heaven. He didn't correct their doctrine. But he did tell them all the same thing. And that was this. Tell them I'm coming. Tell them I'm coming. Tell them I'm coming soon. Folks, he's coming soon. We are the generation that will move from faith to sight when it comes to Jesus. I've got a friend whose mother, sweet lady, she was an absolute fanatic about God and his word. And she'd tell her son, my friend, every day, Jesus is coming tonight. Well, it freaked him out. I mean, totally freaked him out. And of course, over a series of days, you can see that She's not predicting anything with any accuracy. But he said, one thing it did, it made me tell God I loved him every night before I went to sleep. <laughs> it should at the least have that impact upon us. The Bible says, seeing that we are encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run our race. But it speaks even more so about the importance of us pulling together as we see the end approaching. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 23. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. I believe through Paul, but says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. 
for he is faithful that promised. Time is the greatest tool that the enemy has to work against us. Even the Bible says in the Old Testament, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. The devil wants to make you afraid or to get tired of standing strong. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Folks, I want you to see something that the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying the church is going to get better and better. The closer we get to the end, the greater opportunity there is for God to show himself strong. And for the glory of the Lord to be seen and known upon the earth, that has to mean that it's seen and known here too, doesn't it? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the Holy Ghost is just going to move in church services. I believe that'll be a, a lesser thing compared to some other things that he does in public settings. But that doesn't mean he won't do anything. And the more attention we pay to gathering together for the right reasons, to fellowship with one another, to encourage one another, to provoke each other into love. That's what I'm trying to get you to do this morning. I'm trying to provoke you into loving the rest of the body of Christ, whether they're right or wrong in their doctrine. And the Bible says that we should take that position more and more seriously the closer we get to the end. Folks, there is not one prophecy left that has yet to be fulfilled for the trumpet to sound in heaven and for us to be caught into the air with Jesus. The only thing left to take place, according to the prophecy of the Bible, the only thing left to take place before Jesus comes is for the trumpet to, shout, to sound. And the trumpet is not the noise of a trumpet, it's literally a voice. The only thing left to happen is for God to say, come up here. And instantly we'll be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. That's all that's left for God to speak the word. Now, some people think that, that the rapture is an escape theology and it's not. And a lot of people don't recognize that there are several different raptures identified in the scriptures. Enoch was raptured. Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. And he had the testimony that he pleased God. Well, Enoch was caught up into heaven. He didn't die a natural death or a physical death. He was caught up into heaven. Elijah was raptured. He didn't die a physical death. He rode in that chariot of fire up into heaven. Jesus was raptured. Acts chapter 1 tells us about it. Where he was caught up in the clouds. That's rapture. The Bible talks about the rapture of the church. It talks about the rapture of the mixed multitude. The rapture of the church is spoken of 
before the tribulation takes place. And the Bible also tells us, Paul told writing to the Thessalonians, he said the Antichrist can't appear until the church is gone. Because the power of the church, as ineffective and as impotent as the church is worldwide, because of the power of God within us, the devil can't do his biggest and best thing, which is to embody the Antichrist. He cannot do it. Because the church has authority here on the earth. And our exercise of authority to make Jesus, Jesus the Lord of our lives and God our Father is sufficient to keep him from doing his biggest thing. His biggest thing. If he's unable to do his biggest thing because of the power that works in us, we should recognize that he can't do the littlest things against us either when we exercise and take our place of authority. In the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years, or just after three and a half years into the tribulation, it talks about the mixed multitude caught up into heaven. Those are the ones that are saved through the uh, 144,000 evangelists, Jewish evangelists. It's mostly a Jewish crowd. There are some others, some Gentiles included in that mixed multitude, but it's primarily the Jews. Then at the last day, the day of judgment, those Christians, those who have been saved, are born again between the mixed multitude rapture and the end of the tribulation. When Jesus comes from the heavens and gathers his elect from the four winds, not the earth, but from heaven itself, we come with him. They're caught up, they're raptured, and meet us in the air with Jesus too and then come right back to the earth to execute judgment upon mankind. There's seven different raptures of the, in the scriptures. Folks, Jesus is coming soon. I don't know about you, but I see the day approaching. And it could be any time. Literally any time. So as the scripture says in, in James chapter 5, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. In other words, the precious fruit of the earth, the last day harvest, is going to be brought about by a specific and special move of the Holy Ghost. There are some things that we have to do with and there are other things that God does on his own no matter what. One of the greatest evangelism tools that are taking place in Iran right now is that God is appearing, Jesus is appearing to people in visions and in dreams. And many, if not most, of those people are children. He's appearing to kids. Well, when a, a child finds out something, you can't stop them from talking about it. If the Lord appeared to their parents, their parents might be stiff enough not to do anything about it. But to kids, you can't keep them quiet. It's taking place all over the Middle East. In places you can't even get into to preach. That doesn't stop God. That doesn't hinder Jesus from revealing himself to be alive. And identifying who he is. But the Bible says Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. That's all he's waiting for. That's the only thing. So the longer we stay here, the bigger we make the family of God. 
if we're awake to the time that we live in. Amen. Well, let's end with a word of prayer. Father, we see and believe your word to be true. We see that Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. But we also recognize, Father, that we have to be the generation that sees you return. We have to be the generation that meets you in the air. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you to move, to bring forth that early and latter rain that is spoken of, that manifests and creates the precious fruit of the earth. Holy Spirit, we pray for the glory of God to be made manifest in us, in our church, in our state, in our country, in our world. We don't pray just for ourselves, Father, but we don't want to be left out either. So we pray for signs and wonders and miracles to take place. We pray for dreams and visitations of the Lord. We pray that the Holy Ghost would do according to your plan and your purpose that which is needful and necessary to bring forth the precious fruit of the earth. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you in these last days. In this end of times. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, to who we are and what our work is before Jesus comes. Let us be so mindful of the condition of others and the need thereof that we think first and foremost, what can I do to help others? Lord, bring us to people who need you that we might minister to them and show them your goodness and your mercy and your love thank you father that you are faithful to perform your word we will not waver we will not stagger we will not give up. And we declare that we shall see the glory of the Lord in these last days.